here's the magic thing about bureaucrats, <laughs> so to speak. Um, and let's not call them bureaucrats. Let's call them public servants. Public servants, yeah. people that are, are educated, um, yep. thoughtful, and, and trained to serve the public um, might be our best hope for building a, a better world in the current political environment. Welcome to the Nexus Teaser Podcast, an audio appetizer for our monthly UX meetups. Hi, I'm Ben Watson. And I'm Joe Schramm. I'm a professor at uh, NC State Computer Science. And I'm a product designer and product manager here in Raleigh. And uh, we're here uh, doing our teaser podcast for our upcoming Nexus meetup with Jay Dawkins, CEO of CitiZen. Hi, Jay. Hey, thanks for having me here. <laughs> <laughs> thanks. Where are you from? Fayetteville, North Carolina. Fayetteville, okay. Yeah, very close. Yeah. And uh, did you always know you would end up at NC State? I did not. I, I grew up a Wake Forest fan. Both my parents uh, went to Wake Forest. And uh, as with, with many um, uh, good, rabid NC State fans, my drafting and architecture teacher in, in high school um, just kept bugging me about <laughs> uh, NC State. and. Was he from NC State? Oh, yeah. It, okay. There was red everywhere? Absolutely. Okay. Uh, so kind of gave that push and uh, wanting to study especially civil engineering and the, the, the toolkit to essentially build places and cities and things for humans to live in. Engineering seemed like the right route. Were there engineers in your family? Um, one distant cousin. So not your parents? <laughs> no, uh, but somehow the intersection of who they were is still here today because I grew up in a, a family, I, I guess um, every male generation, four generations back before me, uh, served in some capacity in local government like oh, as a, uh, okay. elected official of some sort. So that sort of civic thread is there, maybe not the engineering thread, but the, the civic thread. Yeah, uh, but on my mom's side of the family, a bunch of nerds and uh, accountants and oh, okay. uh, you know thinkers and that sort of thing. So the engineering element, who knows, came out of that. But um, So followed that path to NC State and found myself here in Raleigh. And, I mean, once you arrive in Raleigh, who leaves Raleigh? <laughs> I know, right? What got you into city uh, to uh, student government? Um, you know, that's was that your idea, or did somebody twist your arm? You know, I, I, some people will always be like, "Oh, so I, they made me do it." Like, oh, you have to like this requires a lot of like focused willpower. Like, you've got to go and do this. Um, yeah. My, my freshman year, I was just freshman on what you were thinking. Well, yeah, I was, I was generally interested in student government. I, I'd served okay. student government in high school. And, um, I, I found myself uh, working with this candidate uh, who, was, who was running, and I joined his campaign team and thought it was going to be this big operation, and he was running for student by president of the state. And, um, That's the whole thing, not just the class, right? Right, kind of like a campus-wide office. Yeah. And um, about a week into it, I was like, That's, this is all there is? Like, there's like four of us, and we're riding scooters with uh, with signs on them around. Like, this is what you do to get a This is ridiculous. And in the meantime, like, he was, this guy, uh, he's still my friend today, but he would just say the most outrageous things in the newspaper, which, not that that doesn't work at the I national read, level. I read the uh, technician article. Was that your picture on the article? Maybe. I, 
There was a lot more hair on that face than. Uh, <laughs> oh, <gosh. laughs> yeah, that probably was not needed. Okay, oh, man. <laughs> I didn't uh, recognize you. <laughs> gosh. Well, so he would say outrageous things like, uh, "My my opponent um, is a park scholar. I'm just a regular guy." Oh, but of okay. course, that angers all the park scholars. <laughs> he was trying the whole blue collar attack. Yeah. Exactly. And yeah. it seems to work at the national level. Like said. <laughs> at least that time I was like, good gosh. Like, and he still almost won, even though wow. all of this stuff was going wrong. I was like, wow, wow, okay. This isn't that outrageous of an idea. It's a little thought seed was planted, and I stayed involved and uh, ran my junior year after building a, the whole community of people around me that kind of shared a vision of, of what we could do with student government and you know it's not like you're going to go out there and reshape the world or anything but yeah. you can get some better transit and uh was that some, what, what are you most proud of how oh, did you achieve there gosh that's a hard question really? um, well the the thing that wasn't even on the campaign agenda mm-hmm. uh was dealing with the challenges of uh, the intersection of, of rural politics and urban politics on campus. Really? And so the, the year I was student vice president, Obama was elected for the first time, and we had this thing called the Free Expression Tunnel at State. Yep. Yes. And so all of those tensions kind of like manifested themselves in this you know, free expression zone, and some of those things turned out to be more along the lines of hate speech. Yeah, I think I remember some issues then. We're yeah. talking about 08 or, or so. Right. There were some surveys uh, at the time on campus about sort of gauging people's uh, opinion about various issues like gay marriage and things like that. And I remember reading that it started to spike significantly, just a lot of polarization. Yeah, I, it overflowed in 2008. And it was philosophically a challenging thing because it's, quote, free speech, right? Um, and when you have someone paint something racist or hateful mm-hmm. uh, in a common area, you know, a university that whose values don't align with that, like, what do you do? Um, and so the really powerful thing that I learned from that experience was building a coalition of student leaders that represented all walks of life from all over campus and, and coming together on a statement about what we stand for as people and like as a university. And um, the funny thing was we had to create this statement for something else that had happened on campus. I think there was some other smaller incident that, that wasn't associated with Obama's election, but we had just finished creating this like consensus statement. So it was ready to go. Right. Awesome. About like what we stood for, like, you know, we this is NC State, all people are welcome here, like no matter who you are, what you believe, like your your background, like you are welcome here at NC State. Um, and when it was a very like racist, uh, like hateful thing about Obama was painted and like a few racial slurs. Um, what happened was first the university responded with, okay, the whole tunnel is going to go away. <laughs> We're just going to paint over this whole thing. All speech right now is going to go away. Um, but then in that void, we have all these people who are freaking out and not sure what to do. And it's like, what are we going to say? What are we going to do? How do we fix this? That statement, um, we printed it out on these like giant posters and just lined the tunnel with this statement of, of our shared values as, as campus leaders. And the most powerful like, emotional moment of my whole time was watching students walking through the tunnel pull out their pens and, and start signing their name onto it as well. And so like, as a community, we stand up against hateful speech, even though it's, quote, free speech. The only way to really overcome it is more speech. Right. And to see that powerful of a message come out, that was like an amazing personally defining moment and I think a defining moment for the campus as well. That's really awesome. Mm-hmm. 
the interesting thing there is that I feel like sometimes uh, today's opportunities for expression uh, sort of highlight extremism. And there doesn't seem to be an easy way for the middle, whatever that is, yeah. to, to speak out. And I guess you sort of offered that. You made that possible. Maybe, you know. <laughs> sure. You know, it's funny. I'd never connected yeah. that, that moment in life <laughs> to, to the professional world. But yeah, it absolutely makes sense. Um, yeah. The, the nature of it is that when it's difficult to contribute your thoughts, ideas, uh, or your input on the future of your city or your government, mm-hmm. when that barrier to entry is really high, the only voices that make it across are the most motivated, yeah. you know, like really got to like carve out time. I'm going to go take my seven o'clock in the evening on my Tuesday night and I'm going to go to this room and I'm going to sit for two hours and I'm going to finally get up to the microphone and I'm going to have my say. Right. <laughs> that takes a really bold <laughs> person. And then yeah. you end up with a society being driven by the, the most the noisiest. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It's Whether that's meals. angry or financially motivated or, or just really, really impacted by something. But meanwhile, the, the big middle of the bell curve of folks that have some interests but not right. an angry interest, uh, it, it doesn't align with their schedule and their ability to participate. So. And also, if you just wait for that middle to get motivated and angry and a little <laughs> irrational, it's not the very most. It's not the most. The best way of running a government. Right at that point, the wheels have fallen off. <laughs> <laughs> like when, when you're, uh, you know, your young single mother who's like juggling raising her kids, like shows up at that meeting, like you know something went wrong. Yeah. <laughs> like, we really this has gotten pretty bad. Uh-huh. What happened when you got out of school? I started working for an engineering firm, and um, I, I did that primarily because it was it was a great job right out of school. But also, um, I felt like civil engineers were shaping our urban infrastructure, meaning our roads and our, mm-hmm. our shared spaces, our parks, and you name it. And I was looking for that opportunity. Uh, and as someone that was motivated by you know, creating better urban places, helping more people, you know, have the ability to walk or to experience, um, I guess, a more urban mm-hmm. uh, lifestyle. And instead, I was waking up every morning driving to Cary and, uh, <laughs> and then uh, designing wider roads for NCDOT. And uh, we would occasionally have uh, public meetings, uh, but rarely would they all attend. And usually by the time the public meeting was happening, the, the plan was already mostly built and they were just going to widen the road. And so it was... Uh, it was a bit of a disillusioning experience, um, right? And that that kind of set the seeds for wanting to jump out and actually create something that was better. You know, you had this experience at NC State that was definitely much closer, right? You can get closer to the people who are feeling the thing, right? You put the statement out; they're all signing it. Like you were probably part of the people putting the posters up in the thing, right? Very hands right? on, right? And now take us into that windowless room because I'm sure it was a windowless <laughs> room right <laughs> yeah. human beings first show up and are like hey this is my backyard you're, you're wiping this room what, what was that like as a, as a person on the other side of the table you know most of the time it was just kind of boring um, but when, when it really went wrong it was very wrong um, they were just kind of messy uh, I think the, the project that stands out is an unnamed project in eastern North Carolina where uh, to get a new rail crossing built uh, at grade, uh, they were having to close two or three other crossings in town. And so the challenge is 
you have to pick the crossings to close. And it, in a classic example of you know, best planning intention not matching up with the human reality, um, I think they use the GIS market analysis tool to figure out the, the least impactful closures, economically speaking, um, that, that should happen in order to gain the, the new railroad crossing in this uh, up and coming part of town. Well, we, uh, we draft up the plans for closing those crossings and uh, show up with good intentions at the, the public meeting at the local church. And uh, before we know it, the church is packed to the gills. And, and very angry people. Oh God, <laughs> what went wrong? This strikes heart, uh, fear in the heart of the bureaucrat, you know, walking into a room that's well attended, right? You know? right. Oh, crap. oh crap, yeah. We missed something. <laughs> and it was a classic example of not starting with public input, but why were the people there? Well, it just so happened that the, uh, the analysis that said to close crossing A and B and C, all three of those didn't just happen to be an economically advantageous uh, place to, to close down. All three were critical uh, roads into like the predominantly African-American community within that town. And so when you're, when you're designing in a vacuum and you don't take into account people, that's the kind of stupid mistake you can make. And all of a sudden an entire community has its, <laughs> itself like severed from another half of the community. Um, and so people were angry with good reason. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember my boss uh, uh, standing up in front of essentially the congregation um, who were asking some very pointed questions of like, well, why are you guys even here? Like, this doesn't make any sense. Like, we're, this is clearly, we're, you know, being wrong. And um, he didn't really have an answer either. So he says, well, I, I know why our firm was hired instead of someone else being up here on stage. Um, <laughs> Because, you know, we got to take the... Oh, so, so the firm was hired, but the politicians or whomever that hired you didn't show up. Right. Well, and in this case, it was... <laughs> yeah. That's why you were not there, right? Yeah. That's like why you were earning all the big That's bucks. why we're yeah. here. Okay, cool. Uh, but the good thing was, like, yeah. granted, that the outcome was positive in that, oh, we finally... Okay, we hear you. Uh, yeah. We've got to change this plan. Um, and that's an example where the public actually changes the plan. But... The, the switch that went off in my head was like, why on earth did we not know this? Like, when, at, at what point did we not take into account people? Well, what's the mechanism? So at this point in time, you know, this is pre-Facebook, right? Before, you know, people are using all these new techniques like the ones that you're advocating now. What feedback techniques were available to those citizens in advance of this? Was there anything? Is it basically just, this is your last chance before the train leaves the station, no pun intended, show up at this church and try to stop it? Right. Or is there some other mechanism <laughs> in place for them to, you know, be yeah. heard? I, it was uh, the status quo. It was the, we would um, print up a bunch of postcards. We'd get a list of addresses, um, make some mailing labels, and, and the postcard would have the meeting date on there, and then it would have like an address where you can mail in your, um, Feedback. Your comments. Mm. Um, and so that, that was the user experience, so to speak. Right? Yep. So it's a, hey, we haven't thought at all about your community and we don't understand your community. Here's a time where you can come tell us if we're right or wrong. <laughs> you know? And then what if they don't have time? Uh, Last chance before we cut you off from the world. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and so it, I guess the, the message that, that comes across there, it, it, it probably sounds like these are, these are you know, oh, government bureaucrats, they don't care. And like, these are all really well intentioned people. That right. just don't have a good toolkit for managing the process for gathering public input, 
and, and don't have a way to efficiently do that earlier. Um, that makes sense, right? I mean, it's, it's quite an effort to put together some sort of an election. And if everything <laughs> in government had to turn into an election, that would be not good either. So there, yeah. there has to be some other way, right? A path. Well, and they called it the internet at first. <laughs> <laughs> yep. There was a lot of hype and a lot of promise in the first wave of uh, public engagement website tools. And it was, if you build it, they will come. Uh, and somehow, if we just put this thing up on the corner of our website with a nice comment box and it's a nice form, people will fill this thing out and they'll have a say. And while that did lower the barrier to entry, the barrier was still not knowing about it. And, and maybe even like only knowing about it if you were in a certain area that received a postcard. Uh, but the dawn of social media, and especially social media advertising, changed that. And a handful of organizations are, are learning and adapting to, to use that. Uh, and publicinput.com is like, focused on accelerating that process. Right? So if, if there are tools that will allow us to notify people that there's something going on in their neighborhood that they should potentially weigh in on, and we can put that between the cat photos and the baby pictures on Facebook, yep. like, why on earth are we not doing that? Right? Like, why are we burying this in some corner of a newspaper or sending out a mailer just to a handful of people? And that's, that's the that's genesis of it. It makes me wonder too, you know, on TV and radio, there used to be a price of entry. Like if you want a license, you have to, you know, put out a few messages for us. And yeah. I'm not sure that's true anymore. I'm not on Facebook or Twitter. Yeah, that's the public charter, right? Yeah. The stations had to devote a certain percentage of course. That's right. time. Yeah. Yeah. But I bet I bet the cities are paying now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and there's just those those are those are tough things to to manage again. Where I think the the key element that starts to appear is empathy for the quote bureaucrat. Mm -hmm. And that that's a, a word that has a lot of like weight and It's a charged word, for yeah. sure. It's got a major negative implication. Here's the magic thing about bureaucrats, <laughs> so to speak. Um, and let's not call them bureaucrats. Let's call them public servants. Public servants, yeah. people that are, are educated, um, yep. thoughtful, and, and trained to serve the public um, might be our best hope for building a, a better world in the current political environment. Yeah. <laughs> Which is kind of funny and ironic, but... Uh, yeah, I, I know. I mean, um, whenever I think about what's going on nationally, a lot of times it seems like it's the bureaucrats who are maintaining, you know, something of the status quo and sanity, you know. Right. <laughs> These are people that don't have to play And the they're not elected, which is the sad game. thing. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, isn't the biggest issue not, you know, bureaucracy for bureaucracy's sake, but it's just lack of resources. I mean, isn't that the big thing that kind of yeah. slows down and gums everything up? I mean, sure, it's not like the people running... Uh, these departments don't know that the internet exists. They know these things exist, right? They know they can see commercially that other techniques are being used, but those techniques may not necessarily be available to them. Right. I mean, we're talking about people who put in time on the weekends, who wake up in the middle of the night to answer the phone call about the PR uh, disaster that's happening, and the police department needs the communications person on site, and um, people that went into this for the right reasons and, and with an intent to serve. People, mm -hmm. um, they don't have their names put in the headlines too often unless something goes really wrong and then that's right. a bad day. But um, it's those people that need an easier path to communicating with the public. Um, 
and finally there's this technology to do it, but um, there just hasn't been a, a big arms race to build the tools needed to, mm -hmm. uh, to make that happen. So this sort of experience with the engineering firm and other places just made you very aware of the problem and, and did you are, uh, immediately know how you might address it or did you just think I have a problem I want to start working on? Well, classic startup thing where you, you have the best idea in your head and then nobody wants that. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, hey, we've created this cool little widget that integrates with Facebook and you can ask questions and push it out. I'm like, oh, that's kind of neat. <laughs> like, uh, we really, uh, we'd, we'd like to have photos included with the questions on our surveys. Uh, that's, that's all you're asking for? <laughs> yeah. Um, but that, that's the, uh, the nature of startupping, right? It's, it, even your best idea on a, on a great day is not going to survive first contact with the customer. And, and uh, that journey started in I guess, late 2013, early 2014. And uh, I think that the city of Raleigh has a ton of thoughtful, caring people that are um, willing to spend their time after hours talking to somebody yeah. about uh, potential new ideas. Well, where do you uh, see, you know, there's a certain set of problems you've been tackling to this point. Are there problems that you see yourself get, getting toward in the future? Or are you mostly worried about scale at this point? Like different set of yeah. problems, or just more of the same? That you know, more of the same. Yeah, I, I think um, the exciting part of you know, as we achieve scale, we can invest more and more in connecting the dots and making it easier for the public. Mm -hmm. uh, right now, it's it's almost a secondary concern. Yeah, um, where it's when we have the resources to invest in the user experience and to improve it, it serves both the public and our customers to a degree. Um, at scale, I think that, that that problem will still present itself, um, but as an established company, we will be able to make more and more decisions that dictate where the product's going, that align with the entire spectrum of needs. Um, but the thing that I'm really excited about in terms of where this goes is um, civic tech, so to speak, um, is a, it's a large umbrella, and it's got a lot of, underneath it specifically news as well. And so if we think about meeting people where they are, that's not just on Facebook and, and social media. That's, that's when they're consuming content about their local area um, and what better a place to engage people on local topics than the places that they're reading about those local topics. So we've been building a lot of things there, specifically with Capital Broadcasting oh, cool. here and um, a group called Regency Voices. And, uh, WRAL? Yeah, exactly. Uh, recently, Regency Voices received a News Integrity Initiative grant, which is focused on building public trust in mm -hmm. uh, news organizations. And so we're looking at the connections between public agencies that are looking for input and the news organizations that are covering those topics and covering communities that are mm -hmm. going to be served by these agencies. So that's right. where go. That's interesting because, you know, historically those uh, media, media outlets have been broadcasters, so they mostly are sending information, not receiving the feedback has been missing. Hence the challenge of, of uh, building trust and community. Yeah, that's something that Joe and I and others in our uh, morning conversations uh, have touched on many times. It seems like uh, local media is kind of dying out and, and shrinking in many ways. And uh, it's a problem. Uh, you know, it, it, these days you have to wade through so much stuff to get to the real information. 
Yeah. And, uh, it didn't used to be that hard. At least I don't think so. Back in the good old days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it, it is a thing. Right? We're seeing more of those organizations struggle to find a, a sustainable business model. Mm-hmm. Um, and not diving too far into that rabbit hole, I mean, there's, there's new models appearing, and specifically nonprofit models. And even if you look back at uh, like the Post and the Times uh, and other big media outlets through the, the 50s to now, they were backed in a lot of times by these wealthy, powerful families who, right. you know, during boom times were making money off of these organizations, but during bust times were, were floating them and were keeping them, you know, sustainable and open. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the nonprofit model in that world could be workable. We'll see. Mm-hmm. I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> right, I don't know what the answer is. Maybe something, you know, some version of the kind of thing you're doing might be. Yeah, it's just it's it's important, and um, it's at the small, most impactful end that we're seeing the most struggle. Yeah, yeah. I think I think reader supported also is making a strong case for itself yeah. right now, and the ability for things like micropayments mm-hmm. are more possible than they've ever been. Mm-hmm. So um, I think there's some promise there about people kind of hitting the tip jar in aggregate uh, to create some possibilities. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The Guardian recently, I think they they now receive more revenue from subscribers and membership than they do from advertising. That's right. The New York Times crossed that barrier uh, yeah. over a year ago. Yeah, and but, but those are both about big. big sure, yeah, absolutely. It's not down absolutely. The <laughs> but granted, yeah, they like, have the technology and the tools to do it. Yeah. So hopefully, with with time, some of that technology can trickle yeah. down yeah. to the, the long tail. Things like Gothamist and DCist, you know, before that was closed down, they were profitable. Wow. Why yeah. were they closed? They were closed because they were owned by a big uh, conservative uh, <laughs> political action donator who uh, decided he didn't want a union in his shops, so he closed them. Okay. Even though they were making money. Okay. So that's where the family uh, is. The reverse you know, occurred. No uh, good on the other side of that. Right? Yeah. And another reason I'm trying to just steer clear of politics. Right? Yeah. <laughs> it's just well, we're looking forward to your talk, and um, one thing I'm excited to hear about and have you present on is just. Uh, some of those first contact stories of maybe early customers who um, got a lot of great feedback and then were like, wow, this this changes what we were going to do. You know, if you'd been able to run a publicinput.com poll in that neighborhood about the railroad crossings in advance. Oh, right. We would have never shown up. And <laughs> that's right. Problem, that's right. right. It would have saved totally so much thing. time, money, right. and not wasted everybody else's So I know you've got some stories where by putting that out there, the, the course of events in that municipality are different so we're curious there's some there's some good things that are happening (laughs) that have happened so there's hope for all of us (laughs) (laughs) great thanks jay absolutely thank you guys for having me i'm looking forward to the talk and we'll see you friday december 8th at 3 p.m at the hunt library over on centennial campus at nc state you've been listening to the nexus teaser podcast our meetups happen monthly on fridays at 3 p.m the Hunt Library. This year's meetups and podcasts are sponsored by Eastman Chemical, LexisNexis, and KPIT. Our music was composed and performed by Ricky Hopper. To learn more about Nexus and its meetups, podcasts, and projects, go to our website at nex.ncsu.edu. We're also on Twitter at Nexus underscore USA. Thanks for listening.